you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them up and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a few different spots this morning, but um, mostly in that beginning part of Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Um, I would like to pray for our time this morning, studying God's Word, uh, and then we will continue. Let's pray. Dear Father, now as we uh, take a look at that first Christmas, um, I pray, Father, your words would be full, that your spirit would speak, and Father, it wouldn't be me, but uh, your spirit speaking, Lord. Let this be a conversation uh, between the Holy Spirit and ourselves and our hearts, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us, and in your holy name I pray, amen. Well, one of my favorite parts about um, Christmas are the songs that have been written in honor of such occasion. I, I, I love Christmas carols. You can't help but crank up your favorite Christmas carol uh, when it comes on the radio. Um, there's a weird uh, school of thought among people of when you are allowed to start listening to Christmas carols. Um, some people think it's after Thanksgiving. That's where I fall. Um, some people uh, just think Christmas Eve and Christmas. And then you've got the weirdos that just all year round you can sing Christmas carols. And I know a few of them. So um, it's okay. In my opinion, um, this is my opinion, the best songs often depend on their lyrics. Uh, some people can... Um, get hooked on a song based on its beat or its tune, um, but I really like to take a look and examine what, what, what they're actually saying, what the words are saying, and I'm not a huge fan of the, just the fluffy songs that kind of sing the same thing over and over again, um, and so typically my favorite carols have to do with uh, what is said in the lyrics. Um, with this, there are plenty of good Christmas carols, there are a lot of bad Christmas carols, and then there's some curious Christmas carols. Um, based on what they're saying. And one of the more curious songs that I've ever come across uh, is actually the song, um, Mary, Did You Know? Um, it, we've got a fan. <laughs> The, the song was written um, by Mark Lowry with the Gaither Vocal Band way back in uh, 1991, and it's very much become a modern Christmas carol classic. Um, I would sing it to you, but I think we've heard enough of my singing this morning. Um, well, basically, the song is drawing attention to the significance of this baby boy, Jesus, that was born on that first Christmas day. And this is what the third verse of the song says. It says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? This sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Having had two kids, uh, I can honestly say there is nothing like holding your child the day that it's born. There is something special about that. I remember holding Ella, and I remember holding Jacob, and I remember thinking as I held them that first day uh, of all the joy they were going to bring, all the blessing that they would bring, all the great things that they would do in this world, all the blessing to the people that they would come in contact in it is one of the most rewarding experiences that I have had in my entire life. And so I'm sure as Mary held Jesus that first morning, she, saw, she thought of such things. But as the song points out and as the song asks, could she possibly know what this baby was going to grow up to be? 
could she possibly know who this baby was? Well, incidentally, the Bible actually answers this question. We may sing this song often, but the Bible has answered this question 2,000 years ago. And so once again, we are in Luke chapter 1, verses 26. We'll read through 38, but before I read, I want to give you just a quick history lesson on the Old Testament. If we wish to understand the significance of this child, we need a little history in the Old Testament. The Old Testament in the Bible is specifically one of the main reasons it was written was to recount the history of this country named Israel. It was a nation that held a special place in God's heart. It was God's people. It was recognized as God's people. And it also tells the history of God's relation to Israel, their, his relationship with this group of people. And so, to make a long story short, there was a time when the, the Israel as a country did not have a king. They were not ruled by a king. It wasn't governed as a monarchy. Um, and they wanted to be like other countries. They saw other countries, and they saw that they had kings, and they started pleading with God, give us a king. We want a king. And God ended up giving them a king, and along came a king named Saul. Now, Saul wasn't a very good king. He was very selfish. He didn't have a very good relationship with God. And so soon... After Saul and after kings came and kings went, they realized that this idea of kingship uh, wasn't a very good idea because one of two things would happen. They would end up being not a very good king or uh, any good king they had would die. It, It wasn't a permanent solution, this idea of kingship, right? So after Saul, David became king, and we very much are familiar with David. David is one of the, uh, is the most talked about person in the entire Bible. Um, David was a pretty good king. He had his moments, um, like all of us. But God, at one point, told David that he was a man after his own heart. And so when David took the throne, he wanted to honor God by giving God a permanent dwelling place, a place where God could live. They, they had this thing at the time, it was called the tabernacle. It wasn't a permanent solution to God's dwelling place, but God's presence resided inside the tabernacle. Uh, it, think of this as an elaborate tent. It was, it was a giant tent, but much, just much more elaborate than we might even, than we might even think as, as you look at how it was built. And so every time they would want to go into the presence of God, they would go, uh, the, the priests would go into the tabernacle. And so David decided that this wasn't good enough. He wanted to build a temple for God. He wanted to have a permanent house for God's presence. And so in order to do so, he consulted a prophet named Nathan. And uh, Nathan, if you were to look at 2 Samuel 7, God delivers a message to Nathan. God basically gives his own opinion on the matter about this idea of, of building a temple. And, and his opinion, he basically says, at this point, I don't need a house, and I'm going to tell you why. And this is what he says, what God says through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And it says this, he says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
And if you were to jump down to verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. God is saying to David, no, David, I, I, you are not going to build my house. I am going to build my own house. But I am going to do it through your offspring. I am going to do it through your children's children's children and so on. He's not talking about a physical kingdom or a physical house. It's very much symbolic, although the temple would eventually be built. But if you look throughout the entire Old Testament, you can say that the summit of all the Old Testament is God's promise of an enduring kingdom through the line of David. The Old Testament can be summed up just in that, that God has promised to establish his kingdom through David's offspring, a Messiah. So during the rest of the Old Testament, God continued to speak through the prophets until one day he stopped. 400 years go by of silence from God. So as we look to Luke 1, we see for the first time, like a piercing light in darkness, like a huge bang in silence, God speaks for the first time in 400 years, as we see in the Gospel of Luke. And this is the account of how God begins to break his silence. Verses 26 through 28 of Luke chapter 1. It says this, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. If you look at the story of this angel, Gabriel, delivering this wonderful message to Mary, we get a very peculiar picture. An angel delivering a message to a teenage girl in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a, a, a not very well respected town. It was a, just a small village in, in Galilee. In fact, it was kind of known for its immorality. And we have this teenage girl who probably um, was very low in status in that culture. And this angel is giving this fantastic news to a teenage girl, probably 13 or 14 years old at the most, in the town of Nazareth. And he makes this grand announcement. Let's walk through some of the things that he says about this baby. 
The first thing that he says is that you're going to have a baby, and his name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be named Jesus. You are to name him Jesus. In, in, in Greek, the name Jesus, if you were to translate it to Hebrew, means Joshua. Jesus is the, the New Testament name for Joshua. And if you look at the literal translation of Joshua, it means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh, of course, is the name that, you know, that, that God himself gives to Moses when he explains what his name is. And so right from the start, we see that this baby is significant and that his name is Jesus. We see that God is the saving agent, not us. Yahweh saves. His name is very, very special. The angel goes on to explain that he will be great and called Son of the Most High. There's a distinction here between Jesus and his cousin John that we would recognize later as John the Baptist. It's mentioned here in the passage that we read. When when this same angel proclaims a message to Zechariah, John's father, he tells him that that this man, John, will be great. But now we fast forward to this message to Mary, and Jesus not only is great like his cousin John, but he's great and son of the Most High. Great and Son of the Most High. Mary at the time probably took this figuratively. To her, it probably meant that this son would just be a very blessed boy. He'd be a very special man of God, but we find out later is that the angel, Gabriel, was being quite literal. That he indeed is, in fact, Son of the Most High, and he explains this later. He is the Son of God. There's more. He will be given the throne of David. The angel says that he will be given the throne of David, which means he will become the king of Israel. Now, once again, Mary would have been extremely blessed by this. It would be the equivalent, let's say, of someone coming to you and saying, your baby is going to be president of the United States. Your baby will rule this nation one day. And Mary probably would be taken back by this. Mary was told that Jesus would rule over Israel. But then finally, perhaps the most amazing thing he says, he says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Not only will he be given the throne, Mary, but his rule will last forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus will never vacate the throne. Even beyond your lifetime, Mary, Jesus will never vacate the throne. And this echoes what I read earlier in 2 Samuel. Ever since Mary was a little girl, she heard stories of the coming Messiah. She heard stories of this offspring of David that would come up, rise up, and rule Israel and be the Messiah. The entire nation anticipated this Messiah. And here Mary sits, listening to the angel explain that she will indeed give birth to the Messiah. Now, she might not have understood or fully understood all the ramifications or what this meant, but in Mary's mind, she knows that this is great news. This is fantastic news. 
And typically a birth of this nature with such royal implications of a coming king would call for a great celebration at his birth. There would be a ceremony. There would be a celebration. There would be a celebration with food and music and dancing. There would be a proclamation to the world that this baby, that this coming king would be born. There would be a lot of money spent proclaiming and letting everybody know the importance, the significance, the the magnitude of this birth. But that's not the picture that we get later on in the Gospel of Luke, is it? Look at Luke chapter 2 with me. I want to look at just the first seven verses because we are told of the type of welcoming party that Jesus had when he was born. Luke chapter 2, we'll read just the first seven verses. It says this, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It is said that good things come in small packages. But to put a twist on that, I've heard another pastor say that oftentimes wonderful things come in surprising packages. Wonderful things come in surprising packages. I can honestly say that some of the best gifts I have ever received have never come wrapped in pretty bows or shiny paper. Some of the best and most wonderful things I have received have come packaged in very many different, many surprising ways. We can, at times, have a preconceived idea of what hope looks like based on our own bias, our own opinion, or our past experiences. Oftentimes, we look for something as we expect it, and it comes at us from a completely different angle, maybe not how we would have imagined it. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite Christmas classics that I'd like to show you a scene right now, just a few short minutes. Poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. Welcome, welcome, 
this this sound wasn't sad. What? This sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzed till his puzzle was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I hope we don't have to look at that the rest of the morning. <laughs> We find Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem for a census, and for whatever reason, uh, there was no room for them in the inn. So they were given, uh, they were given space, uh, company with the livestock of the people that owned the inn. Um, we don't know what that area looked like. It could have been a stable. Some say the stable would have looked like a cave. Others say that um, it was, would be more like a shelter or a room attached to the house. All we know is that they were among the livestock. It was smelly, stinky, high-maintenance livestock. And frankly, it doesn't matter what the manger or the stable looked like. We don't want to miss the point of this passage. We don't want to miss the point here. It doesn't matter what they looked like, although we don't know what it looked like. We know given the circumstances, one commentator would say, that everything about Jesus' birthplace points to poverty, obscurity, and even rejection. Everything surrounding Christ's birth points to poverty, obscurity, and rejection. There were no ceremonies. There was no public celebration. There was no proclamation among the nations. Jesus came in a very ordinary fashion. The presents that sit under your Christmas tree this very morning are known for their, their shimmer and their shine and their, their glitz. But here we have the birth of a king. And there is no glitz. There is no glamour. He came without ribbons. He came without tags. He came without packages, boxes, or bags. This is what you would expect from a king. This isn't what you would expect for a king. And I can't help but wonder why Jesus, the great son of the Most High, who will be given the throne of David and who will reign on that throne forever, as Gabriel described to Mary, why did he come in quiet obscurity? Why isn't there a royal procession for the king of the universe entering into the world? Why isn't there parades and celebrations of this coming king on that first Christmas? One commentator answers the question by saying this. 
He says, most of us, had we designed the plan, would have made great pomp and circumstance out of the arrival of the king. But the fact that his birth was like any other common birth says a lot about the great lengths God goes to in order to identify with the most humble people of the world. God may be the God of the universe, but he is no elitist. The humble setting of Jesus' birth not only reveals the nature of God's plan, it also reveals the character of God's heart. It not only reveals the nature of God's plan, it reveals the character of God's heart. It is God's intention to identify with human beings. It is God's intention to identify with us. It is God's intention to be actively involved in his created order. It is God's intention that he be known by you. God wants you to know him. And you know what? I like this because I can relate to ordinary. I'm ordinary. I'm average. I'm your average run-of-the-mill guy who can't sing and can't do much very good. I can relate to ordinary. I can't relate to the spectacular and the grandiose and the -the over-the-top entrance, but I can relate to a baby born in a stable. And it's in the midst of our average lives, it's in the midst of our ordinariness that God busts in. And this is what God did with Mary, is it not? Mary was minding her own business, and then all of a sudden this angel shows up without any kind of sort of invitation from her. You see, God doesn't always do things the way that we would do. God chose to use an average woman to announce his intentions in quiet obscurity. And his intention, once again, is to identify with the human race to be with the human race that was created in his image, that was created to be with him. Essentially, Jesus, the promised one from the Old Testament, enters human life at the level of the everyday experience with everyday people. And he still does that, doesn't he? 2,000 years later, we see that through the proclamation of God's word, Jesus still identifies with us. This is how God works, by Jesus identifying with us. Jesus shares the human experience with us. And the significance of this is that not only does Jesus share in the greatest joys of my life, but he also shares in the deepest grief of my life. He also shares in the deepest pain I have ever experienced. There is no grief and there is no pain that Jesus doesn't recognize. There have been times in my life where I have felt in complete darkness. When my pain and my grief was so great that there didn't seem to be any hope. Darkness has its way with us, doesn't it? Isn't that the nature of darkness? It feels lonely. 
It feels like there's a barricade between us and the rest of the world. It's a pain and grief so deep that it feels as if nobody understands. I know it's Christmas, but I have to ask you this question. Do you feel like you're in that darkness this morning? Do you feel like you are experiencing that kind of darkness? If so, let me give you some hope. Let me remind you that the interesting thing about light is that there is no amount of darkness that can hide it. You cannot hide light from the darkness. Where there is light, there is hope. Where there is light, there is hope. We can say with great confidence that our hope, our light in the darkness, our light of the world comes in the form of Jesus Christ. And this is what we see in in, in John. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but the first five verses says this, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The darkness doesn't understand him. The darkness doesn't recognize Jesus. And it's not because he has desired to come in incognito. It's not because he desired to be hidden. It's not because he didn't want you to know him. The darkness doesn't recognize Jesus because while he is so similar to us in human nature, he is so different in us in how he acts and how he reacts as the son of God. Darkness is confused by Jesus because this human came in to our, this God came into our world as a human to live a perfect life. He is similar to us as to identify us, but his light lights up the darkness. It exposes the darkness for what it really is. And so now for those who follow him, for those who have submitted to him and step into the light, darkness no longer has authority over us. And you may feel that you are in darkness. And even if you are following Christ, you may feel that darkness. But we need to remember what we know compared to how we feel. And what we know is that the darkness, if we are following Christ as our light of the world, darkness does not have authority over us any longer. It once did, and now it doesn't. And so we have Jesus, who was fully God as proclaimed by the angel Gabriel to Mary, and we have him also as fully man. And this is significant because as fully man, there is no amount of pain or suffering or grief that you can experience that he doesn't understand. But as fully God, there is no amount of pain or suffering or grief that you can, that, that, that you can experience that he hasn't come to redeem. He recognizes us. He identifies with us, but he has come to redeem us. There is no amount of darkness that you are currently in that Jesus cannot shine through. Hold fast to that promise. Hold fast to that promise. And that's why you cannot talk about baby Jesus without looking to the cross. We need to recognize not only that Jesus did come 
but why he came. Jesus, a baby born with the main mission that he would die. Die in our place so that all of the darkness in our life could be gone. Do you have that hope? The problem with Christmas movies and Christmas time is they all speak about hope, but they never pinpoint where hope comes from. Our hope doesn't come from good feelings and good presence and goodwill towards men. It comes in the form of Jesus Christ, who entered the world a helpless, vulnerable baby. This is the humility of the manger, and this is proof that God works through the ordinary that he understands us more than we will ever know. Wonderful things come in surprising packages. Hold fast to that hope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I pray, Father, that not another day would go by for everybody in this room without them realizing that you sent your son, fully God, to become fully man. And because of that, because of that, you identify with us, you relate to us, and you have saved us. I pray, Father, that if there's anybody here, that they would experience true Christmas for the first time by looking to Christ and submitting to him and proclaiming to the world that he indeed is our Lord and our Savior. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. And we do lift up uh, as we sing one more song, Lord, that it would be a joyful noise to you. I pray as we collect our offering during the song that it would be a blessing to Erie. Father, that you would use um, our gifts to bless uh, others and to make Christ's name known. And in your holy name I pray, amen.